Well, good morning, church. It is, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open them up to Mark chapter 5. Mark 5 is where we're going to be today. And uh, if you need a Bible, you can just put your hand up, and there are people who would love to help you out and equip you with a Bible this morning. Fantastic. Looks like you all brought your Bibles. Praise the Lord for that. If you don't have one and you need one, though, we want to give one to you, and you can just keep it, too, when you leave. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but I'm, I'm giving out Bibles this morning, so that's fun. All right. Um, just as we get started, I want to ask you a question, as preachers sometimes do when they get up, and if you've ever paid attention to preaching, which hopefully you have, sometimes you notice, like, oh, that's kind of an ironic question. You knew the answer before you already asked the question, but I'm going to do it anyway. Here's the question, and you'll probably snicker a little bit at it, but how capable of succeeding at everything do you think that you are? Now, if you're honest, you're kind of like, well, I'm not capable of succeeding at everything. Okay, good. Then we're all on the same page. But here's the problem. That's not how we live most of the time. In fact, ever since Genesis chapter 3 and the fall, mankind has been believing the lie that Satan sold to us that, hey, you can be like God. You can make decisions. You can be wise. You can make choices. You can do your own thing. You can figure it out on your own and everything's going to be great. That's not true. In fact... The reality is that we are completely dependent and desperate people. And on our own, we are not only deeply dependent, but we are also completely incompetent and incapable on our own. Now, some of you are like, amen, I am incompetent. Some of you are thinking about your spouse and you're like, yes, he is incompetent or she is incapable. All right, listen. I don't know what the Lord's doing in your house, but I believe that he has a word for all of us this morning. Because often we walk through life and we believe the lie that we can do it on our own and it's just not true. And so in Mark chapter 5 today, we're going to meet two people who understand that they need God's help. That they are desperate for God's help. They need the Lord to teach them. They need the Lord to work in their lives and in their situations. And and these are two people who are, are very different. Uh, one person is wealthy and powerful and known. The other person is poor and outcast and ignored. But what they have in common is they both understand how desperate they are. Now maybe you're kind of like, well, I don't fall on either one of those spectrums. I'm not the wealthy, powerful, known person or maybe necessarily the person who's in great financial need, outcast and deeply lonely. Well, the Lord has something for everybody on the spectrum this morning. Whatever end you're at, he wants you to know that he is dependable, that you can come to him. Now, even as we say the word desperate, sometimes in church we say words and we're kind of like, well, that's just like you used a big word because it's an extreme word to help me understand that this is a big thing. And maybe you're sitting there right now and you're kind of like, I don't know if I'd really say I'm desperate. You are. You are. That's a lie. That's a lie from the evil one that you're not desperate. So go ahead and just turn to somebody around you and just start by confessing this. Just say, hey, I'm desperate. Go ahead. Just turn to somebody beside you and just say, hey, I'm desperate. Yeah. See, even doing that feels weird. Why? Because we don't want to believe that we're actually desperate. We don't want to believe that. 
We don't want to, we want to think that we could do it on our own. That's the Genesis 3 lie. You can be like God. You can do it on your own. No, you can't. I can't. I can't even do this, what I'm doing right now, on my own. I need God's help. Now, some of you, though, you're here right now, and you're like, that's real for me. I am desperate right now. The things that I have going on in my life, like you were at my house this week. You wrote this sermon for me, weren't you, Carl? No, I didn't write this for you. Some of you are here and you're like, well, my situation isn't that big, but I guess it's, I got some stuff going on that I could really use the Lord's help with. And some of you are here and things are going really well right now. I'm only 38 years old, but I've lived long enough to know that they don't go well all the time. And there's going to be times when you're going to feel the desperation And so may the Lord speak to us through his word and may he teach us what it looks like to be at his feet and desperate and dependent and leaning on him this morning. Would you bow your heads with me one more time as we pray. Heavenly Father, creator and sustainer of all things, God, we come to you this morning thankful that you do not leave us to struggle through life on our own. That is the reality of what we would do apart from you. That is the reality of what we so often do and so many in this world do is trying to cope and find capable ways to survive whatever is going on, Lord. When you and your grace and your mercy and your love, you care for us, you watch over us, you protect us, Lord, and you make yourself available for us to come to you, to receive from you. And so, God, I pray... I pray this morning that you would teach us from your word. You would stir in our hearts a greater desire and affection and faith, Lord, to trust you. And God, I pray that you would help us to leave this place, Lord, uh, bringing glory to you with dependence in our lives. Forgive us for the sin of self-reliance. Forgive us, Lord, for the sin of independence. God, teach us, Lord. Teach us to trust you. Teach us, Lord, to depend on you. And would you use this passage to instruct and inspire us this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's jump in at verse 21. Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, that's a key line here, and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death, come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Jesus, went with him. Let's stop there for now. Uh, A little bit of context, Jesus has been performing some miracles. He's been traveling around a little bit. This is the third miracle in a row that he's about to do. In the first one, if you kind of scan back in your Bible there, at the end of chapter 4, he calmed the storm. He showed his power over nature. At the beginning of chapter 5, he uh, healed a demon-possessed man. He showed his power over the supernatural. And now, as we're going to see in this story, uh, Jesus is about to display his power in an awesome way, in an ability to raise the dead and grant salvation. But he does this to the person who comes, the man, the woman who comes to him desperate and dependent. But they got to come. So if you like to write sermon notes down, here's point number one this morning. I must ask. I must ask. God is my helper, but I must ask. I must come to him. Excuse me. 
drank so much water on my way here today, and now I'm dry. That's just how it works, right? Okay, so Jairus comes, this man, he comes to Jesus, he gets down on his knees, and he asks him. Jairus is the father of this young girl. We can see that here in the text. She's at the point of death. You see that there in verse 23. She's at the point of death. And then in verse, at the end of verse 23, he says, lay your hands on her that she may live. Apparently, it's so bad that he thinks this might be the end. That's how close to death this is. This is very serious. This is a very big deal. Now, you got to get a little bit of context. He is a spiritual leader in the city. He is morally upright and respected and wealthy and socially prominent elite. This goes outside of all of the regular norms. Thank you, my friend. For him to be willing to come and do this, to set his pride aside, to set himself aside... To be seen in this way in front of everyone else, it's a really big deal. you got to get yourself in the, in the scene a little bit. Jesus comes, he gets out of the boat, he's standing there, and this man Jairus comes to him, who everyone knows and respects. And a lot of the spiritual leaders at the time, they, they didn't really get along well with Jesus. They had conflict with him. And so for sure, as Jesus is standing there and the crowd's kind of around him, around the edge of the water, and this guy comes, the, the crowd would have parted a little bit. Oh, it's Jairus. He's one of the leaders from the synagogue. What's he going to say? What's he going to say? Is he going to confront Jesus about something? And he gets there and he drops on his knees. Everyone's just like, <gasps> if this happened today, everyone would have pulled their phone out. It's like, we have to capture this. Like, I can't believe this is happening right now. This is such a big deal. And now look what he says. He comes and he implores Jesus. He begs of Jesus. He isn't messing around. He doesn't care who sees this. He knows he needs Jesus to come to his sick and dying daughter. He's at this point of great desperation. Likely he's gone to doctors and different people and tried to do everything he could on his own, but there's nothing he can do. And so he comes and he asks Jesus for help. Jairus was a man of authority, but here he puts his authority and his respect aside for the love of his little girl and desperately asks Jesus. I've always thought it's interesting how intense and threatening the situation gets before he finally comes to Jesus. His daughter's at the point of death. It'd be easy to judge him and be like, why didn't you go earlier? But aren't we so often like that too? So much goes on in our lives. We wait far longer than we need to. That old hymn, oh, what needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. So often enduring far more than we need to. Now, look at the end of verse 24 here, because this is so good. Jesus' immediate response, and he went with him. If you don't have that underlined in your Bible, you should. And I'll explain to you why as you underline it right now. Two major reasons. One, Jesus doesn't hesitate. When we come and we ask, he doesn't hesitate. Now, he hasn't done anything for Jairus yet, but Jesus is always listening when we come and when we ask. He might not answer exactly how you want when we want. It might not always go exactly according to our plan, and we're going to see that's going to be the case for Jairus here. But he, he reacts. Jesus reacts. He doesn't hesitate. And here's the second thing. Jesus doesn't promise that he's going to fix his problem. But his presence is now with Jairus. 
Think about that for a second. How much confidence now does Jairus have as this man who he has obviously heard things about, he may have had previous conversation with, he may have witnessed him do miracles before, and now the one guy who I think I has hope for my situation, he's with me. I'm sure as Jesus is like, all right, let's go. Jairus is like, really? Really? Like, like you're going to come with me? Yeah, okay, all right, awesome, awesome. This is, this is the way we go, this is the way we go. And then immediately he would have been like, come, 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 come Jesus, I'm, I'm ready, I'm ready, this is, this is great. But he had to come first. He had to ask. So often we need help. We need a helper to intervene in our lives and our desperate situations with nowhere else to turn. Sadly, we often get ourselves to the very end when he was there all along for us to come to. But we just don't ask. You have to ask. If you don't ask, you won't get an answer. If you don't ask, you won't know. I remember asking in 2004, September 2004, my wife to marry me. That's a scary thing, guys. Some of you have been there. Some of you hope to someday. It's a scary thing. Ladies, you just stand there. It's not that hard for you, okay? <laughs> it's so hard, right? We got to go talk to the in-laws, and I am blessed to have amazing in-laws, and not just because they said yes, but had a great conversation with them, and then my father-in-law, I remember him being like, well, she's still got to say yes, and I was like, what, you think she might not? Like, he was just messing with me, but... And so I asked her, and she said, yes, you saw the picture. We have four kids. We've been happily married for um, almost 15 years now. And, but I had to ask, right? You have to ask. If you don't ask, you won't know. Listen, God has revealed himself over and over again in his word to care, to love, to take thought of his people who he's created, even in our rebellious sin. While we were yet sinners, he dies for us. Why? Because he loves us, because he cares for us, and he wants to intervene in our lives. Ephesians 3.20 says that he can do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power that is at work within us. This is who he is. This is what he can do. And we sit back and we're like, man, I'm going to figure it out on my own. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? So often trying to be independent and not desperately dependent on the Lord. We need to come to him. We deny our desperation because of pride and indifference. We aren't willing to depend on the one who we need the most. Jesus' immediate response is to come with him. No hesitation to be present. And that's the reality for you and I today in our desperate situations. He is not hesitant to be present with you. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, which for some of you may feel like you're walking through right now, he is with you. So what do we do? How do we ask? I want to give you a, a short quote that will lead us to some application in this first point. Uh, Daniel Henderson says this often, God is worthy and we are needy. I like this statement. God is worthy and we are needy. How do we connect those two things? Well, here's the first thing. If God is worthy, we need to declare his greatness. If you're going to ask God, if you're going to come to him, it starts with declaring his greatness. Come before him and exalt him. We fight pride and we grow our faith when we exalt the Lord. When we remind ourselves of the truth of who he is and what he has done and how he works and what he But see, what we often do is we don't come and start declaring his greatness when we come to him in prayer. We come to him with this shopping list similar that you would give to a loved one they're going out. And 
you're like, hey, if you could swing by the grocery store and get these things, that would be great. But if you don't get all of them on the list, you know, well, I'll get them later. That's how we treat prayer often. That's not how we're supposed to treat prayer. Now, God wants to know what's on our list. What are the things that we care about? But John Piper says that prayer is not a, 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 an intercom service for ringing up the butler to bring us another pillow. He says it's for calling in firepower from heaven. It's for asking God to help you fight the devil. It's for helping in our desperate situations. But that's not how we treat prayer because we're not starting from this place where we're declaring his greatness. We're not thinking he's that much more superior than our problem. So we've got to come back to a place where we start in our prayer and our start in our thinking about who God is and what he has done by exalting him, by reminding ourselves that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, which makes every one of our little problems seem even littler. And every one of our big problems also seem littler. Because he's upholding the universe by the word of his power. We need to declare his greatness. And then secondly, I just wrote down that we need to admit our need. If you want God to do something that only he can do, you've got to ask him for it. You have to articulate it. You have to come to him in dependence and lay it at his feet. He wants to know. Jairus comes. He couldn't fix the problem. He couldn't fix his issue on his own. He comes and he's desperate and he asks we need to stop taking matters into our own hands, myself included in this. We need to be a people who are much quicker to come to the Lord. He loves us. He cares for us. Just think about Christmas and prayer connecting the two of them for a second. He loves us enough that he would come to earth. That's what Christmas is about. That's how much he loves us. He sets aside, Philippians 2 says, he sets aside the glories of heaven because he loves us to come to earth. And then we think that he's not going to care about our problems? No, he absolutely does. And so here we see in Jairus' situation, as he puts pride aside, as he puts self-reliance and independence on hold, and he comes to God and he asks, God responds. But we have to ask. Let's keep reading the second half of verse 24. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. For sure, they're all excited. We're going to see a miracle today. Come on, you got to come. What's happening? This, that guy's got a sick girl. And Jesus is going. Verse 25. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garment, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she uh, felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him uh, the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. I love this woman's faith. 
her desperate situation, she comes, one author said, there's a big difference between the pressing of a crowd and the touch of faith. She comes, she reaches out in faith. Why? Because she believes. This is point number two. I must ask, but I also must believe. This woman is an example of great faith for us. She has been suffering for a long time. Twelve years she's been sick. Things have gotten worse Doctors have likely not helped her at all, only caused more harm. She's broke. Things have only gotten worse. She's at the opposite end of the spectrum from Jairus, who's walking with Jesus, excited, but now, no doubt, kind of frustrated at this delay that's come up. But this woman, like Jairus, is desperate. She's desperate for God to help and intervene in her life. Now, look at verse 27. There's three words that I want you to see here, because these are fantastic for us. We're like her in this story. Verse 27, three things, okay? Um, she had heard the reports. To this morning, you are hearing the reports of what Jesus can do. She came to him. This is what the Lord is calling us to do. And touched him. And this is what he's calling us to do. To reach out. To, to ask for him to intervene. She comes. She believes in faith. Is her faith perfect? No. Did the actual touching of her, his robe heal her? No. Jesus is going to articulate that later. There's a little bit of superstition going on in there. Her faith isn't perfect. But she's got faith. But she comes. And she believes. And she reaches out. You've got to, again, you've got to get yourself there uh, in the crowd. So Jesus is with Jairus. They meet them at the, at the edge of the water. They're walking. Uh, Jesus is with Jairus. Jairus is probably leading him a little bit. And they're following along. And this woman, as the crowd's bumping and pushing, she reaches through and she touches Jesus. And we see there that in the verse it says that she immediately knew she was healed. No doubt she just stops. And the crowd just begins to go by her as Jesus goes a little further before he stops and turns around and she's standing there no doubt with a smile on her face as tears of joy fill her eyes that all that she thought was true about Jesus is because he can do it and he has now Jesus stops and he turns around and we see there in verse 30 he wants to know who touched him. Now the word that's used here, the, the power that went out from him, that's not just kind of like, oh, I felt some power go out from me. That word is the word that we get the word dynamite from. Like this is a massive thing. When he said that word, people likely would have been like, you think you got that kind of power? He's like, yeah, I felt it go out from me. Like something amazing happened. Now Jesus isn't asking this question because he's like, who did it? Not at all, okay? Sovereign God over all the universe, he knows exactly who did this, okay? Just for the record. So then why does he ask? I give you three reasons this morning. One, that she would confess and come to him that she believed in him. He wants to interact with her. That's the first thing. He wants her to confess. But secondly, he wants her faith and the display of that to increase the faith of those around as she gives a testimony to what God has done. It says there um, in verse 33 that she tells the whole truth. All of the awkwardness and the uncomfortableness of explaining her situation, she lays it at the feet of Jesus. No doubt at this point, because she would have been ceremonially unclean and unwelcome there, and as she's explaining all that's gone on in her life and what her situation's been like, she is on her knees before him, like thinking she's about to be in a lot of trouble. Because she shouldn't have been near him. 
Jairus definitely wouldn't have wanted her near him at all. And now Jairus is kind of standing there just like, come on, come on, come on, come on. Like my little girl, she's dying right now. And Jesus is having this conversation with this woman. But she comes and she lays it all there. Here's the third reason why. Because she comes and she articulates to Jesus who he is and what he has done. This is what I thought would happen because this is who I thought you were. And it's true. And this is what you've done. Which is a picture of us in prayer coming to the Lord. Then Jesus gets to look at her. No doubt making eye contact. Maybe lifting her chin up to look at her in verse 34. And he says, daughter. He gets to look her in the face now. He wants her to know that he cares. He wants her to know, I love you and I cherish you. And I knew this was going to happen. And he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now the word daughter that Jesus uses there, he didn't have to use that. There's a lot of different terms that he could have used to refer to her that he'd used elsewhere in scripture. He could have said woman. He could have said ma'am. He could have said miss. He could have called her by her name. He knows her. He is the sovereign God of all the universe. But he uses this word daughter. And it's actually almost the same word that Jairus used to describe his daughter who he desperately loved so much earlier in the passage. It's kind of a, an adult version of it. And he uses this term of affection because he wants her to know, I care for you. And then this is what he says to her, your faith, not the touching of my robe, but your faith in him who wears the robe, your faith in Jesus has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. Now, look at the end of the verse 34 there, because it seems like she kind of gets healed a couple times. Made you well, go in peace and be healed of your disease. What's all happening in there? Uh, uh, this is what's going on, okay? First, she gets saved. He says to her here, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Then he says, you are healed of your disease. The healing of the disease is the second thing. The first thing that Jesus takes care of is her salvation. He says, you have been made well, go in peace. She now has peace with God because of her belief in Jesus Christ. And she's healed of her disease. Often, this is the order that Jesus does this in. Why does he do that? Think about um, the lame man who's carried to Jesus and lowered through the roof. They bring him to Jesus, and what does Jesus do? The first thing Jesus does is he said, your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on to say that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. Why don't you pick up your bed and walk? And he gets up and he walks out and probably comes back and helps patch the roof later. But why does he start with the other? Because the other one's more important. Salvation's most important. And again here, Jesus, he starts with, with making her uh, uh, right with God, giving her peace with God. But then he doesn't just leave her there because that's, that is our biggest situation. That is our biggest challenge. That is the thing we're most desperate for. But it's not like he just cares about that. He also cares about all of the little things that go on in our lives. Her faith wasn't perfect, but she comes desperate and he takes care of her. We need to do this. We need to trust him that he is our helper and believe in him that he can do all that he says he can do. 
we go through life believing things all the time. But yet so often we struggle to believe the truths that we have about God, which we actually have a book articulating. I flew on a plane to come here this morning. You're like, how far away do you live to come to church? Well, I'm a guest preacher, so I had to get here, right? It's a long drive otherwise. I didn't just get to the airport this morning and then be like, okay, which plane are we going to be taking? I'd like to do a circle check. I'd like to kick some tires, check some uh, levels, check some valves, make sure everything that moves is supposed to, make sure the tight things are tight. I didn't do that. Why? Because I assume that somebody who knows what they're talking about did that, right? I believed in the system. Now, it worked. Praise the Lord. I made it here, okay? Most of the time, it works, all right? Here's the thing. When you and I fail to trust the Lord with our situations, it's like we come to our problems, our desperate moments, and say, I know you got a plan, God, but let me give a little, a little lap around. Let me kick the tires a little bit. If I walked around a plane to do a circle check, I wouldn't have the foggiest clue of whether things were right or not. Not at all. Maybe some of you would, but I would have no idea at all. This is the same thing that's happening in our lives when we look at our situation and we're like, well, Lord, it seems a little weird to me. And he's like, but you don't know what's going on. I know from your vantage point and your perspective that this is hard to comprehend right now, but you need to know that I'm bigger than this and you need to trust me. You need to believe in me. The application for point one is pretty straightforward. It's an active thing. It's something we need to do. We need to ask God for help. But the application for points two and three, by the way, there's only one more point if you're wondering how long we're going to be here, are theological applications that we need to understand and embrace better. And this first one is that our hearts and our minds need to grow in our trust and our belief and our dependence on Jesus. This is why stories like this are in God's word. This is why in verse 27, the Holy Spirit has the word heard there, heard the reports, because he wants us to hear the reports. Maybe you're like, I'm not sure I can trust the Lord. I'm not sure I can depend on him. It's hard, and I don't mean to say that it's not hard, but I mean to tell you he has given you his word to fuel your faith, that your faith fire may burn brighter for him as you better understand his capabilities and his love and his compassion. In your desperate situations, in your worry and your fear, he wants you to know he can help. Believe in him. He's given us his word to inform us and to increase our faith. He has given us each other to come alongside and to speak truth to one another. I heard someone say recently that um, there are occasions when you need to get on the back of another believer. Now that doesn't mean like get piggybacked out of church. But it means to ride on the faith of someone else. And I have gone through a, a, a little bit of a season recently where uh, there's just been a lot going on and it's been uh, a hard time. And, and if I explained to you my hard time, you'd be like, that's not a hard time. You should have seen my hard time. That's why I'm not telling you what it is. But in that, I had to come alongside some other people and I had to say, listen, it's tough right now and I need you to pray with me. And there were days in there where I kind of felt like the faith of these other people, I'm kind of riding on their backs right now. And on the truth that they know. And so 
you need one another, but you need his word to inform you who he is that you can ultimately depend on him and rely on him in a greater way. Loved ones, God can help. We have to believe in him. We have to believe in him. This is the call for us from this verse, to believe in him. Now, the passage goes on. Jairus is still standing there. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Now, this is a major plot twist. And um, you can kind of put yourself there as Jairus stands there and he watches Jesus interact with this woman probably getting frustrated, probably getting impatient, and now this guy comes and it doesn't seem to be said very sensitively, at least when it's translated to English. The guy's just trying to get Jairus home. Listen, it's too late. You got to get back to your family, man. Now, Jesus interrupts this conversation in verse 36. You can almost imagine that as Jesus is standing there and he's talking with this woman and, you know, daughter... Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed. And he hears this out of the corner of his ear. Jairus, come home. Your daughter is dead. He turns, verse 36, overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. It's almost like the the enunciation that Jesus is using there, it's almost like he interrupts the other guy. Your daughter is dead. We have to go home. Hey, Jairus. Look here, buddy. I'm with you. Do not fear. Only believe. How easy would it have been for him to just walk away? No, forget it, Jesus. But Jesus said to him, do not fear. Only believe. Only believe. This is what he's calling us to do. He's calling us to trust him. He's calling us to believe. He's saying to Jairus in this moment, listen, my love and my grace are still compatible with your mess. Maybe God is saying that to you this morning. My love and my grace are still compatible with this mess that you feel like you're in. Only believe. Point number three, I must not lose faith. I must not lose faith. Listen, it is not over ever until Jesus says it is. It's never over until Jesus says it is. Verse 37. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, and the brother of James. So now he's just like, okay, forget it. Crowd, you're away. You're not coming with us anymore. Peter, James, John, the big three, you're coming with me. Jairus, you're with me. I don't, we don't even know if he let this other guy come. He might have just been like, no, forget it. You're a distraction to Jairus right now. And he goes... Verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. These are professional mourners who would have been hired. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Now, for us, as we read this and we know, spoiler alert, the girl's going to get up at the end of the story, okay? Um, but for these people there right now, they, they, can't, they can't fully comprehend this. They've seen lifeless, pulseless bodies before. Well, let me read this. One author wrote this. Real death is separation of soul from God, not the body from the soul. In this sense, her body was asleep. 
and Jesus would bring her back to life. But Jairus still didn't know that yet. She didn't, Jairus couldn't comprehend this just yet. And so all of these people, verse 40, and they laughed at him, which is kind of ironic, right? They're like, oh, ho, 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 you think she's just sleeping? Boy, are they going to feel goofy when they see her the next day, right? She's dead. No, she's not. She's playing in the yard. She just got water with her mom. And they're walking the goats. I don't know whatever they were doing. But like, she's alive, okay? She's not dead. She's totally alive. Verse 40 goes on. But he put them all outside. So now he just kicks everybody out. And he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Now look at this, verse 41. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And he immediately... The girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. Wow, this little one who was gone is now alive. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus told Jairus, do not fear, only believe, because nothing is over until God says it is. And here in the quietness of this little girl's room with just a few people, Jesus comes along and he picks her little hand up. He picks her hand up and he speaks so softly and gently to her. That word that he uses there that's translated, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. It would be the English equivalent of us saying like honey or sweetie. It's a term of great endearment and compassion. Tim Keller wrote, Jesus is facing death in this moment, the enemy of the human race, and such is the power that he holds this child by the hand and gently lifts her up right through it. Honey, get up, he says. Jesus is saying by his actions, if I have you by the hand, death itself is nothing but sleep. So the question for us then is, are we holding on to Jesus' hand? There is no place, there is no problem, there is no situation that God can't handle. All hope is not lost. Do not fear, only believe. I don't know what your scenario, what your situation looks like today. Maybe you're thinking about the fear and the worry and the anxiety that you have over job or health or salvation of a loved one, your home situation, your marriage Safety of someone or yourself, sickness, a child. Listen, this morning Jesus is saying to you, I have you. I got you. You must not lose faith. Is this hard to live through? Yeah. Jesus had to get in Jairus' face and say, hey, do not fear, only believe I am with you. But as he does and he looks and as he turns to him, Jesus delivers. Jesus takes care of him. Understanding the plans of God sometimes are like trying to explain to a two-year-old why they need to nap and eat. If you've ever tried to do that, they just look at you like you're a crazy person. Like, I do not understand why you're doing this at all. It doesn't make any sense to me. My little girl's one right now, and yesterday we were trying to get her to eat. It was just one of those days when she just didn't want to eat anything. And then all of a sudden she wanted to eat everything. 
And you're like, why didn't you eat earlier? And you're like, oh, don't you understand? You need to have like some meals and some fruit and some vegetables. And like, she doesn't get it at all. Listen, that's what you and I are like so often when we're looking at God's sovereign plan unraveling in our lives. We're just kind of like, ah. We get frustrated. And hopefully we don't have the same kind of temper tantrums that children do sometimes. But God loves us and he cares about us far greater than the best parent could ever care for their kid. And so he looks at us in our situation with far more affection and far more care because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us to say, listen, I know what's going on and I love you and I care for you. I care for you. That's why I sent my son Jesus, that if you believe in him, you can have forgiveness, that you may have life, that you can have peace with God too. This is what Christmas is all about. And I, to use Jairus' word, I implore you, if you are here today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you need to know that God loves you and he cares for you. And you might have a lot of things going on in your life, but if you have never had the problem of your sin dealt with before God, he says to you today, come, loved one, and be forgiven. He wants to deal with that. He wants to take care of that. And he did that on the cross when he died and rose from the dead taking the punishment that you and I justly deserve. But then he also says, listen, I, I, I don't just love you at the cross. I love you every day. And your mess is not incompatible with my grace. I will not be hurried because I love you. I know what I'm doing. Don't try and impose your understanding of the situation on me because I love you and I'm taking care of you. This can be hard though. We get confused, we get frustrated, we feel maybe desperate sometimes, like God's far off. Well, he isn't. Just like with Jairus, he promises his presence to us. I want to read you Psalm 23. And if you're in a desperate situation, or have been, or will be, which is all of us, let the words of verse 4 stick out to you. I'll, I'll, I'll emphasize them when we get there. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for you are with me. Jesus was with Jairus. Jairus is in this place of fear and worry. His little girl has passed. And Jesus is right there with him. He picks her up by the hand. Jesus, turning, looks at the woman and he says, Daughter, because he loves her and he cares for her. And he's right there with her in her moment. For you are with me, the psalmist says. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Listen, some of you are here today. And you are desperately looking over the spiritual lifelessness of a loved one and you need a resurrection. Some of you are here today and you have situations, maybe like this woman's, where you are desperately in need of God's help. Let me tell you, Jesus is the answer. Faith in him is the only hope. He is trustworthy. We need to let him take us by the hand and do what he wants in his plan because he knows what he is best and he knows what he is doing. We know he loves us. He's proved it with the gospel. The gospel must then inform and educate and help us then to walk this out in faith. 
Because we know that oh so soon when we leave this world, we'll see it all clearly. But until then, we must not lose faith. This isn't always easy. The world around us is hard. Sin has corrupted this planet. It feels out of control sometimes. Filled with worry, filled with fear, filled with frustration. This woman comes with great faith. Jairus comes with faith. They come desperate. And the Lord delivers. And he says that to us today too. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I love you and I care for you. Do not lose heart. Do not fear, only believe. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, God, we just confess that this is not easy to live out so often. So often we are overwhelmed by the challenges of our world, by the consequences of sin, by the evil things that go on around us, by the discouragement, by all number of different things, Lord, that would steal and distract us away from you, that would cause us to be filled with worry and anxiety. And God, we just confess this morning, Lord, how often we are independent when we need to be dependent. Whether it's big things or little things, all of us in this room struggle with this. And so God, we're praying and we're asking, Lord, that right now you would be teaching us stirring our hearts, fueling our faith, building our belief and our dependence and our trust, God, that as we come to situations where we feel desperate, Lord, you would draw us quickly to yourself, that we wouldn't wait to come to you. God, I pray for the loved one in here right now who is heavy laden with worry and anxiety and frustration and feeling far from you. Lord, would you help them see that your love is totally compatible with their mess? God, whatever the situation is that's going on, it doesn't decrease or diminish your love in any way. It doesn't remove your power and your ability or your care. And God, we don't always see it the way you see it. So please, Lord, would you help us to trust that your way is best, that your way is sufficient, that you are worthy of our dependence. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name.